Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. When someone has experienced loss, we need to be careful that our words are fitly spoken. Here's Jerry Sitzer. Sometimes words can actually exacerbate the problem rather than help the problem. I mean, Job's three friends did their best work when they just shut their mouths for a week and sat with Job on that heap of ashes. The cues, when they're ready to talk, then you're ready to listen. When they really feel like they're ready to receive a word, then you give it, but never before that. And what you don't want to do is use words to try to somehow push the loss and its significance away. This is Family Life Today. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. We'll hear today how God shows up in the midst of loss and about how we can show up, too. Stay tuned. Welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. Just as I was walking in here, I got an email from our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Michael Easley, who's the pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Franklin, Tennessee. And Michael sent me a prayer that he had written to send to uh, a couple who had experienced the loss of a child a year ago today. Uh, The child had lived two months and unexpectedly died. And Michael wrote this prayer for them. He said, I pray for you today that your memories will be sweet, that your hearts will be calmed, that you will find a non-anxious presence, that you will choose to trust and see good when there is nothing for sure, Hmm. that you will grieve, but not as those who have no hope, that you will find comfort and mercy in places others may never know that your why questions will be replaced with a confidence in knowing that he knows, and that's enough. We love you and ask him to pour mercy, kindness, and hope into your hearts. He does indeed know you and love you, no matter what your experience may try to tell you. Bob, you know, as I listen to those words, I think, how many people listening to this broadcast right now have experienced loss, some some kind of major loss in their lives in the past five to ten years. Mm. Um, As I said earlier, if you live long enough, you will experience loss. In fact, life is is really made up of a lot of losses as we lose our childhood and move into adulthood. Some of those losses uh, look good at the time, Mm. you know, but some of the losses aren't, uh, aren't easily figured out. In fact, some are never figured out on this side of heaven. And we've had a guest with us, uh, Dr. Jerry Sitzer, who uh, has helped us um, better understand the process of grieving through his book, A Grace Disguised. Jerry, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. I mentioned earlier that uh, Barbara had recommended this book to me after our our daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Jake, experienced the loss of uh, their daughter after seven days of life. And Barbara joins us on the broadcast as well. Sweetie, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. In fact, I, I hadn't asked you this question, sweetheart. As you read this book, what was it uh, about Jerry's book that most ministered to you, and why have you recommended it to so many people? Wow. 
I wish I had my copy in front of me. I tried to find it this morning, and I can't find where I set that thing. But at any rate, it's all underlined and marked and page corners turned back. And um, But one of the things that I remember most vividly is early in the in the first few chapters, Jerry, you talk about how loss is loss and that it doesn't do any good to compare losses and to say that this loss is worse than that loss because loss brings grief and it brings pain and that grief and that pain is real and um, needs to be experienced and um, it is what it is and to try to explain it or measure it and say it's not really that bad or it's worse than this doesn't really doesn't really make any difference in the long run and I think we're so prone to wanting to measure um, and figure these things out the other piece that I remember real vividly is uh, a later chapter in the book um, talks about how our identity is changed by grief and loss and how so much of who we are is wrapped up in our identity with that thing or that person or that ability that we lost, whether it's a divorce or a death, or whether it's losing the ability through a physical illness, um, and how that personal identity is transformed through the process of loss and grief. And I thought that was really helpful and profound. I call that the amputation of the familiar That's self. That's what it was, yeah. It's extraordinarily hard because we're we're really defined by our location, mm-hmm. our relationships, our work. These things provide sources of identity, and when one of those is lopped off, it requires a pretty long and significant period of adjustment to figure out who you are in the wake of the loss of that thing when that thing defined you to some degree. I mean, we have these phantom pains, you know. Phantom pains are are the leg telling you it's still there when you look down and it's not there anymore. That's what an amputation does. And we will go through a long period of time when we feel those phantom pains of still feeling like we are this person, we belong to this person, we do this particular line of work and this kind of thing, even though we don't anymore. How long was it for you in the weeks that followed the car accident where your wife and your daughter and your mother all were killed? For how many months did you have this kind of reflexive phantom impulse to say, oh, I ought to call her and share this with her and then realize she's not there? Well, for a long time, and reflexive is the right word, too. It is like a reflex where it's programmed in you so automatic. I mean, after 20 years, when you call your spouse once or twice a day just to check in, hi, honey, how's it going? What are you doing? What are the kids doing? Or how's work going? That sort of thing. You can't help but have your mind go there just automatically. It happens a long time. I would say after that, those months, even though it wasn't as reflective as it once was, uh, it, it it still was an impulse in me. And I, to tell you the truth, Bob, it still is after 18 years. Now, I don't say that in a despairing or bitter kind of way. I still think about those people every day. There's not a day that goes by I don't. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't like words like recovery. I think that gives us a kind mm-hmm. of vain expectation, as if we can get back to something we had before. And I'm not even sure it's honoring of the losses that we've experienced. The image that comes to mind is of an old oak tree in a backyard. It's been there forever. You grew up with this big oak tree, and you had picnics under it and a swing on it and this sort of thing. It, it evokes all these memories of childhood, and it gets a disease, and you've got to cut it down. So you look into that backyard, and all you see is this big stump, 
big, ugly stump that reminds you of all these memories you had for all those years growing up. Now, I think that stump needs to stay there. I think you need to acknowledge the significance of the stump. But what comes to my mind is the image of planting around it. So you start putting in lawn and a gravel pathway and a bench and, and perennials and bushes until the stump becomes a part of a larger landscape of beauty. Hmm. Now, that's what's happened to me is the memories have actually not faded. And I don't want them to fade. But my life has this kind of verdant growth to it now, vitality in life, raising my kids, seeing them thrive and move on and use their gifts in service to Christ and his kingdom and this kind of thing. That's made life very rich and meaningful for me. But I still remember the ones who have uh, gone before me. Some months before our our granddaughter Molly died, I received uh, an email from uh, the gentleman who heads up family life in in, uh, New Zealand. Uh, His name is Andy Bray. He and his wife, Nikki, have given leadership to family life there for more than a dozen years. And their daughter, who was 15 or 16 years of age at the time, was killed in a tragic flood in New Zealand, along with five or six other young people who were all first-class Christian leaders. It was a a reward trip for these young people. And um, I received that email some months before Molly's death. And I have to tell you that in those seven days of Molly's life, I kept thinking that has to be a harder, a harder thing to bear to have had a relationship with your daughter for 16 years and now to say goodbye. I mean, it's one thing for my daughter and, and, and son-in-law to have a relationship for seven days and say goodbye. And the more I tried to work this equation out in my mind, I came to the conclusion that it was futility. It was a waste of time. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, comparing losses is vain. The re- it's, like, it's like comparing headaches. I mean, people will describe their headaches in lots of different ways. Well, how are you going to determine which one is worse? I mean, it's, it's, it's silly in the first place. I put it this way. All losses are bad, just bad in different ways. How can you compare, say, the loss of a spouse to death and the loss of a spouse to divorce? How can you compare the loss of a child to death or, say, the loss of a child to waywardness? They're both bad. And they stand on their own. And we need to treat them as unique and sacred in and of themselves. I tell you, that was one of the reasons why I hesitated to write this book. My story is kind of sensational in a way. I mean, this big event and three people are killed in this drunken driving accident. Everybody sort of gasps. And I, was, I became almost like an instant celebrity in Spokane overnight. And I didn't like that. And the reason why I didn't like that is because I was so profoundly aware of other kinds of losses that were as severe as mine, mm-hmm. just different. And maybe not visible and maybe not as prone to receive sympathy from other people. Let me give you an example. Some guy came up to me a couple of years after the accident and said, I've resented you for two years. And I said, why? I mean, I hardly know you. And he said, your tragedy turned you into a hero. My tragedy has only brought more pain. My wife left me for another woman, he said. And I've had to deal with catastrophic consequences, but I'm nobody's hero. 
other was very sobering for me to hear. It wasn't very nice for him to say, but it was very sobering for me to hear, recognizing that there are lots of losses that do not receive very much public attention. If they do, it's not with sympathy. And so I hesitated to write the book. And when I decided to write it, I inserted chapter two, Whose Loss is Worse, just to protect myself from being made some kind of false celebrity because of my loss. There are lots of ways to suffer, lots of ways to experience pain, and mine is only one. And there are lots of things I don't know. I don't know what it means to experience, let's say, the long-term effects of terminal illness or injuries from which a person cannot recover. You know, it was interesting, Barbara, to hear you reflect back on what had an impact on you as you read Jerry's book. I asked Mary Ann last night the same question. I said, what was most impactful as you read the book. And she said, probably the chapter on forgiveness. And I thought, it's interesting. I don't know that we make a connection between grief and loss and forgiveness, but you see those as being intimately tied together, don't you? I do. And I titled that chapter, Forgive and Remember Instead of Forgive and Forget. I don't think it's possible and I don't think it's healthy to forget anything. But I think forgiveness can change the way we remember things, especially when we've had pain inflicted to us. Spouse has betrayed us. Somebody's done some violent act, say, uh, raped us, something like that, or someone has embezzled money and that destroyed our business. There are lots of ways we suffer loss when the results are catastrophic and somebody willed to do harm to us, directly or indirectly. In your case, it was uh, a drunk driver who swerved across the road, right? And smashed into us. Now, he didn't intend to do that. His harm was not malicious in the sense that he was out to kill three members of my family. But his irresponsible decisions did lead to that and required me to forgive. What did you have to go through to get to forgiveness? I think there were two phases to it. The more immediate and obvious one was the trial when the drunken driver was acquitted on a technicality, and he walked away. And that only added kind of a a bitter cast to an already difficult journey of forgiving somebody who had had such uh, a significant impact on my life. And I learned in the process that forgiveness is not a singular act. It's a process you go through. And I think the most significant decision we make is to say we want to forgive. Not that we forgive at the time, but we want to go through the process where forgiveness begins to take place. And we get to the point where we can wish the person well and pray for them. And, you know, to tell you the truth, in a sense, I'm still going through it. Last summer, my daughter got married. It was a lovely wedding. She married a great Christian guy. It was a magnificent event, full of joy and just pure pleasure. But sitting next to me was a small table with a bouquet of flowers, honoring the absence of my wife. And everybody knew she was absent. We felt the absence. And I had to kind of forgive him all over again. Now, it wasn't as hard as it was 18 years ago. But it was still a reminder of the impact of his behavior on my life. So I would say forgiveness is an event in the sense that you choose to want to forgive. It's a process that you go through over a long period of time. You choose to give up the right to punish another person. And you entrust that to the good hand of God. The one who ultimately will rule in justice. 
Correct. But it will not be as we want it to be because his justice is not only clear and firm, it is also redemptive. Was there a time when you gave up the right to punish him? I mean, where there was a face-to-face meeting with him, where you granted him that reprieve? I've not had a face-to-face meeting with him, but I'll just say that's coming. Ah, Good for you. I appreciate your courage. But I have forgiven him. And so have my children. That doesn't hang over our head at all anymore. It hasn't for a long time. When you sat down at the computer and said, okay, I'm going to write this book, was part of your motivation the catharsis for your own soul? Not a bit. No catharsis in it at all. Really? No. I, I, if, if there was any catharsis, Bob, it was uh, rereading my journal. That was hard to do. And I reread it, took some notes on it, and burned it. Hmm. It was just too much. Uh, it was too raw. And I, I kept that journal for a, a period of about three years to kind of work things through. And when it was done, it was done. I reread it, took notes, and dumped it. And have you ever regretted burning it? No, never. Hmm. No, I haven't. And then I wrote the book not as a catharsis, believe it or not, I wrote it as a a duty. My friends talked to me about it and said, this is simply something you have to do. You know, you're a writer, you have the gift of words, you think in images, you've thought this through, this is simply your obligation to the body of Christ. Get it done and then walk away. And that's what I did. You have heard some amazing, well, you've gotten some amazing feedback to the book, letters. You you were saying earlier, not a week goes by that you don't hear from someone who God has used your story and your book profoundly in their lives. Yeah, but it's a strange thing. There's a kind of otherness to this book. Uh, I actually brought it with me. I haven't, I've reread it once since I wrote it. And that was when the new edition came out about five years ago. It's the only time I've ever cracked it. And I skimmed it a little bit yesterday. And it was a strange experience because it almost as if I didn't write it. It has an, a quality of otherness to it, as if it's not quite mine. I think the closest would come would be how parents feel about their children, is that those children are so much a part of you, but when you look at them and get to know them, you realize they're so other than you, too. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this book. You did tell a story before we came in the studio of a letter you'd received from a woman who um, had a brother who was murdered. And this was uh, after 28 years. And uh, through those 28 years of suffering, and she described it as being uh, very harsh, very hard. Uh, She feels like she lost her mother permanently in the wake of her uh, uh, brother's murder and this sort of thing. She decided that she needed to forgive the murder of her brother. So she did research, found out where he was in the prison system, and uh, asked if she could have permission to visit him. And he sort of coldly acknowledged, uh, gave her permission. And uh, so she went to see him. And, and God gave her two words on, on the ride to see him. Uh, and these are very powerful to me. Uh, the first is, you're never beyond the reach of the grace of God. And the second is, you can always become the man God wants you to be, even if you're in prison. And she met this man, forgave him. 
he broke down and sobbed, came to know the Lord, and their relationship continues to this day. That's a powerful example but of, of forgiveness. But it's a little troubling to me, too, because it doesn't always happen quite that easily. Right. Sometimes it is a process. It's a journey. And you have to go through phases of forgiveness to get to the point where you can really wish the person well, entrust them to the good hand of God, and pray for them. Mm-hmm. Your your uh, your story and just what you said reminds me of uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse eighteen. Um, and these are powerful in my life because there's a person I've had to forgive more than one, obviously over my lifetime. But but one where this is very real to me. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's interesting, Jerry, as I have uh, very imperfectly attempted to be obedient to that passage and have prayed for not only to be able to forgive and, and to be at peace, as I've thought about the wrath of God, I've prayed for the person that that person would be delivered from the wrath of God, because I know what that means um, and potentially could mean for an eternity separated from God. Oh, and what a terrible burden a person has to bear for wrongdoing. I would always choose to be the victim of wrongdoing than to be the perpetrator of wrongdoing. Hmm. Early on that came to me, by the way, is I thought about what it would mean for me to to change positions. And I didn't want that at all. You know, ironically, we like to claim justice. We really want, we think we want to live in a fair world. Right. But I'm not sure we'd want Mm -mm. the world to be fair. On the one hand, maybe some bad things wouldn't happen to us that have happened to us over the years. But grace isn't fair either. And I'd (laughs) rather live in a world that is unfair, knowing that I'm going to take some hits along the way, as I have and will continue uh, to experience if I know that grace is available to me too, because the unfairest thing in the world is grace. Mm. I think about our Lord, who had to wear a crown of thorns, the only one in all of human history who is not deserving of that crown of thorns, so that we could wear a crown of honor. Mm. What a picture. There's no fairness in that at all. And, and, and the reality of that is it all occurred through suffering. It all occurred through suffering. In fact, that is the answer to the problem of evil. This is where the Christian answer to evil is so paradoxical and so glorious and beautiful. The Bible's answer to suffering is suffering. The suffering of God in human flesh. God chooses out of his pure love for fallen humanity to actually enter into the world. And instead of entering it in a, with a glorious birth, uh, announced by and heralded by by sounding trumpets, he's born into a pathetic stable. He grows up in obscurity. He's a carpenter's son. He never gets a first-rate education. He doesn't really get an education at all except in a synagogue. Has a three-year ministry, and then he suffers death on a cross. We're talking about God doing this. This is the Bible's answer to suffering. God's suffering and then the triumph in the resurrection. And the Apostle Peter says this, 
about that suffering of Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may be able to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Paul writes, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. This is one of the strange things that's occurred in our own experience is a a, a rejoicing in the experience. Not because we're glad it happened. We'll never be that. Bad is always bad but because of what's come as a result. Yeah, and you're talking about what has come in your own life, your own experience of God's grace in the midst of all of this, but also what has come through you in the book that you've written, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows for Loss, that God has used uh, powerfully in the lives of folks sitting around this table and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of folks who have read the book and God's used it in a great way to minister to them in their own sense of grief and loss. But I will say that no book, however well-read and however life-changing, will ever justify, explain, or excuse no, that's right. the pain that was, uh, that was visited upon us. Mm-hmm. The, these, are t- these are separate things altogether. I don't like it when, when people sort of explain something because of the good outcome. Right. Yeah, Joseph exactly. really gave us the right formula here. Mm-hmm. You meant it for evil. God worked it out for good. Mm-hmm. But the evil was still evil. Yeah, that's right. And we don't want to do anything to try to minimize the reality of that. But in the comfort you've received from God, you have been able to be faithful to do what Second Corinthians 1 says, to comfort others with the comfort you've received. And you do that through your book, and uh, we want to encourage listeners who are in the midst of a season of suffering or a season of loss to get a copy of the book, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. You can find out more about it online at familylifetoday.com. That's familylifetoday.com. And while you're on our website, you will also see information about uh, Barbara Rainey's new book written with your daughter, Rebecca Mutz. It tells the story of the life the the short life of your granddaughter, Molly, who was born a year ago at this time and lived for seven days. The book is called A Symphony in the Dark, Hearing God's Voice in Seasons of Grief. And we do have copies of that book in our Family Life Today Resource Center as well. You can get more information about it online at familylifetoday.com or call toll-free 1-800-FL-TODAY, 1-800-358-6329. Someone on our team will let you know how you can get either or both of these books sent to you. Tomorrow, we are going to talk with a young woman who lives in New York City about really about a different kind of loss than we've talked about already this week. We're going to talk about being young and single and wishing you were married and dealing with the sense of loss that comes with that. Carolyn Lutweiler is going to join us tomorrow. Hope you can be back with us as well. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, and our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We will see you back tomorrow for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas. Help for today. Hope for tomorrow.
a foster mom named Wendy and her husband invited two young girls into their home. She realized it was hard for these girls to have moved six times in two years. It's like duct tape ripping off of your skin. It's very painful to take them out of their home of birth. And then when you put them into a foster home, that's a place where you want them to attach, you want them to feel safe, and you want them to grow. And then when they're taken out of that home, it's like ripping that duct tape off again. Find out what happened in this seventh foster home on the Nuclearity Podcast at nuclearity.org.